Hey, if you have your Bibles, we are still in the Gospel of John. We're almost done, probably like December. And, uh, but uh, grab them, turn to uh, chapter 6, John chapter 6. If you have a device, uh, you want to click on the ESV and you'll be able to stay with us. Last week, remember, we, we talked about this concept of believing Jesus. And what we see is that Jesus is getting in all kinds of trouble because he's making claims about himself as having equality with God the Father. Um, he is saying that... He was sent by God the Father. He has equality with God the Father. And last week we saw that the people should believe him because they saw some things. They saw witnesses give testimonial evidence to the fact that he indeed was the son of God. We saw some of the works that he had been doing that gave evidence that that God the Father had actually sent him because he had that kind of supernatural power. And then we saw that the people, there was an expectation that the people should have known that he was the Messiah because if you went all the way back to the writings of Moses, Moses was writing about Jesus and the things that Moses had written about were all pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ and yet the people were just mired in unbelief. And we talked about um, in our own lives and in our own society, um, we see people who can have a particular kind of spirituality about them. They can even, we use this phrase, we made a distinction between believing in Jesus as opposed to believing Jesus. Remember, we need to believe in Jesus too. But the point of the distinction was to say, we can kind of step back and we can sort of view God as this entity or this thing or this power or these great teachings that are good for us to believe in without really believing the person himself, Jesus Christ. And so we, we drew out some of those distinctions and we said, hey, it's important for us to see the power of Jesus's words being transformative in our lives. So we need to not just believe in Jesus as this thing out there, but we need to actually believe Jesus as this person who entered our world and who now lives in our hearts and who has words that contribute to the transformation of our lives. So we, 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 uh, we unpacked that and this week we're gonna unpack not believing Jesus but beholding Jesus as we step in and we see these two really supernatural miracles. I know I said really like as if the other ones aren't as supernatural, but these supernatural miracles that really defy the laws of gravity. So we're going to pick right up here in John chapter six. You can follow along in verse one. It says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the sea of Galilee, which is the sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with uh, his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand and lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now he said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said in verse 10, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. 
So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is God's word for us this morning. We're going to stop right there. What would you think if I told you that Melissa and I slept in a cave with some friends this past week? I was hoping for a a greater reaction than that. Well, some of you, many of you maybe would be worried about me and ask if God had audibly commanded me to to do this, right? Um, Because, you know, me and the camping thing, right? Um, The reality is that we did. We actually slept in a cave this week, but it was a cave like nothing anybody has ever seen, nothing we've ever seen. So this is what it was. Some home builders built an Airbnb inside of a cave in the mountains of, of Hawking Hills. And we had the opportunity because we knew some friends who knew some friends who knew some friends to go stay in this really just weird creation, this one-of-a-kind creation. And it was just crazy. It was crazy to be in this thing, this, this Airbnb that was literally carved out of the side of the mountain underneath and in, in, within this, with, with this cave. And you walk into it and it's clearly a cave. I mean, it's nice, but it's a cave, right? And it's, you, you, you walk in. And all the cave formations, they're, they're still a part of the house, right? They didn't just like drywall over all that stuff. Um, it still kind of smells like a cave, so that was kind of weird. Um, at some point you think, I, you get a little weird. At some point you think, um, man, I wonder if these rock ceilings are going to fall on me at some point. You know, it doesn't look that stable. Um, at some point you think, did they manage to get rid of all the bats? You know, um, But the reality is, is that this was a cave, but so much more than a cave, right? And and the two days that we we were there, we we actually just, we just stared at wonder in it, on it. And and we, we wondered about the creativity of the builders who put it together as well, the men and women who designed it. And that's a little bit of what we see in today's passage, which is that Jesus performs two miracles here, and they both defy the laws of gravity, and here's what it is. They give people even further insight into the heart behind his mission. They give us even further insight into the heart behind his mission. So we're gonna see how Jesus uh, created a feast out of five loaves and two fish, but it's more than that. And we're gonna see how Jesus walks on water to the disciples in the middle of a stormy sea, but we're gonna see that it's, it's not just that he calmed the sea, but he did something greater than that in the hearts of his disciples. So this is what we wanna do, is we wanna take a look at two foundational truths uh, that these miracles illustrate for us. And the first one is this, is that Jesus provides for our needs with a greater provision, with a greater provision. It's one thing for Jesus to do a miracle of this magnitude, 
feeding 5,000 men, just 5,000 men alone, with five loaves and two fish. And by the way, we need to, we need to ponder just the wonder of that. You know, this is one of those Sunday school stories that some of you may have heard so many times, you go, yeah, the fish, right? But we need to just stop and pause and ponder the wonder of that, right? Kind of in the same way that a, you know, like a, a brilliant sunrise, like this morning on, a, on just a sparkly blue morning, it just can become like wallpaper to us. Um, we need to consider the astonishment of what Jesus accomplished here. He was defying the laws of nature, which makes sense if you're the Lord over nature itself. But Jesus also did something else in this. Jesus also showed the people something else entirely about himself, which was his humanity. And that's one of the unique things that is happening right here because within this crazy miracle, we also see the depths of Jesus' humanity. He was fully God, but he was also fully human. He needed to eat. He needed to drink. He needed to sleep, just like the people that ate, drank, and slept around him. There's a famous saying that's been used to describe Christians. This is really old school, but it's this. They are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. Has anybody ever heard that said? Like two of you. All right, I need to, need to get into the 21st century here with my, with my old phrases. But Here's what we know about Jesus. Here's what was unique and different about Jesus. Jesus was so heavenly minded, which is the very thing that made him so earthly good, right? Because he came to make things on earth as they were in heaven, which is what he also told us um, we should pray. He was expanding the kingdom of heaven on earth. And this was one of the ways that he was showing the people his power to do that by providing them with the things that they needed for their body, the things that they needed as part of a way for them just to flourish as human beings. And what's interesting is how Jesus, he tests Philip, his disciple. He asks the question. He says, hey, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Jesus presents like a problem to Philip that wasn't at all a problem uh, for Jesus. And you notice Philip just goes for the facts, right? His answer. Well, here's my observation, Jesus. If we had a bag full of money, it wouldn't be enough to feed this many people. It's so interesting that Jesus tests him with the question and just like, just, just literally right on point, right? Philip answers how we would all answer. But this is so much like uh, you and me. We find ourselves in a place where we need what feels like an abundance and we look around with our two-dimensional eyes and say, it ain't there. It's not possible. We're kind of like Andrew here in verse 9. As we go down the passage, he says, look, the only food we have are five loaves of bread and two fish because some kid remembered to bring his lunch, Right? But then he goes, what, what is that? When we're talking about 5,000 men, like Philip and Andrew, we immediately see a need that far outweighs the resources that we can see with our eyes. And that's because we see with our eyes instead of the eyes of our heart in that sense, right? Think about the disciples and what they had already seen the Lord do up to that point. 
Think about the times that you can look back on your own life. You can see the way the Lord has provided for you. Why is it that when another obstacle comes, it always seems to outsize what we know is already true about God? And that's what's happening right here as he tests Philip and as Philip and Andrew answer him back. And the reason is because we don't consider who it is that goes before us. We forget that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What is anything to God? What is anything to him? Is there any need or any level of abundance that is too great for him? So my first allowance was $2 per week. Every Saturday, my pops would reach into his wallet and pull out two crisp dollar bills. It felt like a fortune for a 17-year-old, you know? <laughs> I think I was three. I thought I was three or four. Um, every week, like clockwork, my $2 payroll would come in, direct deposit into the account, right? Uh, it took a long time for me to get a raise. Uh, that's another story, and I don't want to get bitter right now. Uh, but here's the thing. I was never afraid that a Saturday would come and my dad wouldn't have $2 to pay me, right? It would have been absurd. What was $2 to a man who owned a house and two cars and a 10-inch TV, right? <laughs> what was $2 to a dude who had those kind of luxuries, you know? My dad was unfailingly good to provide for me what he promised. It was his money, after all, right? Every time God provides, he's only ever providing what is already his, right? That's where this concept of stewardship comes in, right? This jacket, I'm just wearing a jacket that the Lord owns and he's letting me use it. Everything we have is something the Lord is giving us to steward, but we are so forgetful about that, which is why when we kind of face a deficit in our lives, we get shaky and we get a little tense and we forget who it is that we're talking about that spoke the world into existence and provides everything else, right? When we bought our building, we knew that our level of stewardship would need to be elevated, right? Because we are now responsible to maintain uh, the building that God had placed under our care. Now we've We've entered a season where it's time to replace the roof, right? We've talked about our roof campaign. It's going to cost a significant amount of money. But what is that to God? What is that to God? What is $85,000 to a God who spoke the trees into existence that produced the dollar bills? So as good stewards, we come together as a congregation with the resources he's provided for us because, well, you know, he typically doesn't drop bars of gold from the sky. He, he could do that if he wanted. But we're not the kind of church that's going to go out and have a prayer service and wait for those <laughs> bars to drop. But we trust him that he will provide through our generosity, through our sacrifice, and through whatever means he chooses to help us cover this financial need. Who knows how God is going to provide for us in that? I don't know. We just come together, we pray we see how it is that we can be a part of that stewardship and we just trust that God's gonna provide for us what we need in this hour of need. And you know what's so funny? It's hard to believe that Jesus cares about this roof. But why, why wouldn't he, right? It's his warehouse. 
He cares about this roof even more than we do because this is where his church gathers, right? And when Jesus provides for our needs to such a dramatic and such an astonishing way, we gain an even, listen to this, a greater provision than just the roof. Our hearts become humbled and our minds are taken back in gratefulness and awe for the miraculous power of the Lord to create the something out of where we only see nothing. We remember once again that he is our great and generous provider. And is anything too hard for him? To think of Jesus as this this overly penny-pinching God who's on a tight budget, who says, guys, I'm going to have to need to check my retirement account before we can talk about the roof, right? It just couldn't be further from the truth. We look at what happens in verses 12 and 13. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And when they gathered them up, they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five loaves left by those who had eaten. Jesus provides so much food that the people eat their fill, eat their fill. He wasn't rationing. Eat, be filled. And even has the disciples wrap up the leftovers to put in the fridge for later, right? And notice this. All we're told that Jesus did before distributing all the food was give thanks to God. So, There is something here that we need to get pressed into our hearts, right? We pray that God provides for us just like Jesus told us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread, right? But when we pray from a heart of thankfulness, from a heart of remembrance for all that he's given us, we are reminded that he has always provided for us. It's not whether we have enough bread to eat, It's that we have more than loaves and fishes in this life to sustain us at all. And he gives us the greater provision in that. He provides for our needs with a greater provision than just food. Which then encourages us not to worry about food. Like Jesus instructed us in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 6.25. Here's what else Jesus said about bread In John 6, 27, we're going to hit this next week. He said, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And then later in John 6, he's going to say, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. What he's saying is there's something more you all need than even this bread that's going to sustain you physically. And if I am good enough to provide for you spiritually, you better believe that I am good enough to provide for you physically. You can rely on him entirely. Is he not good is the rhetorical question that we ask, right? And then we get to this transition in verse 15, which is so interesting because it says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus pulls back. Jesus withdraws. This greater provision that Jesus came to provide did not include being crowned earthly king over Israel. 
Jesus is the eternal king of the world, right? Not like Leonardo DiCaprio, right? He is the eternal king of the world. But the rule of the Roman government was a real thing, and it was an ongoing grief for the Jewish people. They desperately desired deliverance from Rome. So instead of seeing Jesus as the great deliverer and the great redeemer spoken about in Old Testament scripture in order to save them from the oppression of their sins, they only saw Jesus as someone to give them relief from the oppression of Roman rule. Now, of course, look, there was nothing wrong with the people wanting to be delivered from Rome. Just like there's nothing wrong for us to to desire and pray for and work towards a more just society. Those are good things. Those are right things when they reflect the heart of Jesus. But the Israelites had got it wrong here because they didn't understand the mission of Jesus. We're gonna see more about this next week. God didn't send Jesus to establish an earthly kingdom. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil, not the work of the Roman emperor. Jesus knew that if the hearts of the people were turned to him, then they would be able to endure through this Roman rule with hearts of renewal and hearts of hope as they waited for something even better. Jesus didn't need to establish himself as the king of Israel because he was already ruler of the universe and his mission was to make all things new, to bring people of all tribes, tongues, and nations into his kingdom, which is what he's doing today. And that is what we behold as we look around the world and we see these amazing spreads of the gospel in uncharted places, in places where the gospel has never had a a far-reaching impact. We see different parts of the world just exploding because God is doing a work of kingdom expansion, right? So Jesus provides here, but with an even greater provision that his miracles were supposed to be a reflection of for those who had hearts to receive him as the reason, as, as, the, as the real reason for which he came. Secondly, not only does Jesus provide for us with a greater provision, but he, he calms our fears with a greater fear. He calms our fears with an even greater fear produced in us. So up until this point, we see Jesus doing some really interesting things. He's turning water into wine. He's healing the sick of their diseases, feeding a multitude of people with very little food. Now he does something that shows his power over the laws of gravity, which simultaneously deals with the gravity that exists in the heart of his disciples, right? So again, we're seeing this Jesus defying the laws of gravity in a supernatural way. And yet what we're going to see is something happening entirely different, simultaneously in line with the gravity that exists in the hearts of the disciples. Now, look, we struggle with miracles. We're Westerners. Um, We can tend to shut ourselves off to things that that push against science, that push, push against logic and natural law. Um, But what we see in the Gospels is that if you are the creator of science, logic, and natural law, then those things are subservient to you, right? And that's the God that we believe in when we talk about Jesus Christ, right? Not the other way around, 
right? So Jesus doesn't come to earth and say, man, I got to figure out how to get around here. I got to figure out how to do, you know, these natural laws that, that, haven't, that are still going to be 1,500 years away from all these scientists creating. I got to figure out how to maneuver. Jesus goes, I don't maneuver. I'm God. I created these things. You're going to see some things that defy what is naturally ingrained in your head to believe, which gives evidence, once again, of who I am. Stormy oceans and strong winds, they're just not a barrier to Jesus, which is why Jesus, listen, didn't wait for the storm to die down before he went to meet his disciples. And here's something for us. Here's something encouraging for us to remember. And it's that he, he also doesn't wait for the storms of your life to die down before entering the boat of your life, before coming to you. In fact, it's when the storms are at their darkest, it's when the storms are at their most violent that Jesus will arrive to show his power over things that are only grave situations to us. That doesn't mean that they aren't grave situations. That's not to minimize. But that's to say that we're dealing with a God who enters into those situations and has a vision and a power within them that can be trusted because he has a heart of care and compassion that matches his motives in it, right? So it's curious that Jesus let them go out to the sea by themselves. He didn't have to do that. Could have hopped in the boat, but he didn't. He let them go out to the sea by themselves. And he did it because this would be an illustration to them that even this, even going out to the sea, I need you to catch this, even going out to the sea by themselves was a, was a, was a false perception. And here's what I mean by that. If Jesus has command over the wind and the sea, it means we are never alone in the middle of a violent storm in our lives. Jesus did this to create an opportunity to calm their fears in order for a greater fear and awe to take root in their hearts and in their minds. Jesus wanted his disciples to recognize his power and his presence in their life, regardless of how dire the circumstances were around them. How important is it for you this morning to remember that darkness is not darkness to Jesus? Which is why he said, it is I, do not be afraid in verse 20. This was a divine statement by Jesus recalling the days of Moses when Moses asked God, hey, when I go see Pharaoh, and I got, to, I got to announce all these things that are going on. I got to ask him to release the people of Israel. And then I'm going to be going through all these plagues you're going to be sending. He said, when I see Pharaoh, who should I tell him is sending me? And God said, tell Pharaoh, I am has sent you. The order is significant, right? That Jesus lays out here. The it is I precedes the do not be afraid. Because what else has the power to remove your fear? Jesus enters into your storms the same way. It is, it is me. Now you don't have to be afraid. Stormy seas and violent winds, not a thing for me. I have command over them. 
when we give ourselves time to pause and ponder the overwhelming, the transcendent greatness of Jesus, when we are in a place of danger and darkness, our response will be transformed. It'll be transformed the way it was transformed here for the disciples who received him with this peculiar gladness, it says. They were glad in verse 21. We'll have this very peculiar gladness. Jesus calms our fears with a greater fear, a greater awe, and a greater wonder of his power, which is the only way for us to experience true wholehearted gladness. David speaks about the gladness of God's presence. He does it all through the Psalms. In Psalm 16, he said, you have made known to me the paths of life. In other words, you, you are telling me something about what it is that you are made of and what it is that you are offering to me and who you are intrinsically. You have sh made known to me the paths of life, which is, which is another way of talking about the person of God. And he said, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. God's presence filled David with gladness because he understood God's power over the elements and over the enemies of his life. And what a different response the disciples had compared with the Jewish people that we've been learning about over the past couple of weeks. The disciples pulled him in instead of pushing him back because their hearts had been changed by Jesus. When they saw Jesus, that initial fear produced a greater fear in them that turned into a gladness that received him in because they were reminded of the person that they were dealing with. And more importantly, who was dealing with them. So, how do we keep ourselves in a place of beholding God so that we experience the gladness that his greater provision, that his greater fear provides for us. A couple things here. First thing is this, is we want to recount his wonderful deeds. We want to recount his wonderful deeds. We want to make it a practice to look at our lives and the life in the lives of others and recount his wondrous deeds, his miraculous works, because you know what? They are everywhere. If you take a minute and ask God to open your spiritual eyes to see the stuff that he is doing all around you, it's right there. These things, these, these wondrous deeds, these miraculous works, they exist in both, by the way, they exist in both the, the mundane and the marvelous events in your life, right? David said in Psalm 9, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. So this, this recounting, this pausing, this thinking about the things that God has done, it's infused with the way that we give thanks to God. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 63, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. See, God deals with you out of his abundance of love and grace and mercy. And we need to recount that. 
Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Ask that question. Who is like you? Recount his wonderful deeds. Secondly, reflect on his wonderful creation. We forget the wonder that is Christ's creation. It's why we keep these things that we want you to look outside, you know, on Sundays. Uh, maybe you can only see the parking lot. I don't know. Use some imagination, right? But we want you to look outside. We want you to, uh, want you to behold Christ's creation. Sometimes we just need to do that. Sometimes we just need to get outside and open our eyes. We need to lay on our backyard and just stare up at the sky, preferably when it's warmer than 20 degrees. But you guys do your thing, right? Reflecting on nature, by the way, is not just for people who like to write poetry. It's a way that we bask in the wonder of what Jesus has made, which then leads us to seeing the greater provision of his heart for us, which then helps us cultivate a greater fear and awe of him so that gladness permeates our souls. David writes in Psalm 8, he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David is like, I'm so small, but somehow I'm loved with a love that surpasses the size of the universe. How is that possible? We want to reflect on the wonderful creation that, that gives us perspective about who we are and then gives us just greater and growing perspective of who Jesus is. And then finally, we want to remember his wonderful heart. Reflecting on God's wonderful creation, it leads you back to his heart, which is wonderful. What we see here, we see Jesus dealing with 5,000 men and wanting to feed them. Jesus walking on the water to his disciples who were in terror because of the storm on the sea. We see somebody who had a wonderful heart towards the care and provision of people. Like David, we want to step back and say, who am I that you care for me to this degree, to this overwhelming degree? God's creation helps us see the, the largeness of our smallness, right? Which in turn helps us see the magnitude of God's grace. That's what David was driving at in Psalm 8, and that's what Jesus was doing with his disciples when he calmed the storm and transform their fear of nature into the better fear of his supernatural power in presence. So we step back today as people who struggle with having that greater awe and fear of God, that struggle with trusting that even though God spoke the world into existence, somehow our finances may be a little complex for him. Somehow, the, somehow the, the, the needs that we have in this church, they just might be a little bit too much for him to handle. And we step back and we see, the, we see the reality of that. And we also see the foolishness of that, not, not as a way to, to shame us, but as a, as a way to remind us and to stop us in our tracks and to bow our heads and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Let me have a sense of the greater provision that you provided for me in Christ so that I don't fear the other provisions that I still need in my life and that you have been good to provide me with all through my life. 
where I see the things that I'm afraid of and I, and I, and I see the seasons that I'm in and there's hard and I'm afraid. But I also want to have this growing reverence and awe and wonder in everything that I see that you've created and done and realize that even these difficult moments and these, these trials that I'm experiencing and these seasons where it just feels like, I don't know how this is going to end. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. And you see Jesus saying, I calm the waters of this life because I created the waters of this life. I come to you, I walk to you, I enter your life. See who I am. See the glory in my power to redeem the hearts of mankind. Am I not good to provide for you, not only physically, but spiritually, everything that you need for life and godliness? That is the savior that has saved us, amen? Let me pray. God, we thank you for Christ this morning. We thank you for his great provision for us. We thank you for the physical and the spiritual provision. We thank you that he is somebody who enters very intricately and intimately into our lives and he calms our fears and as he's calming our fears, he, he provides an even greater fear for us, Lord, which is how our hearts are more greatly transformed into his image. Lord, I just pray for those today that just may be in a place where these, these things are very real to them as they think about their lives or their finances or events that have transpired that make it very difficult to trust that you are somebody who cares that's, that you are somebody who is at work because sometimes it's hard for us to see evidence of that. We just see five loaves. We just see a couple of fish. We're not sure that you can do it. And sometimes we're sure you can do it. And we're just not sure you want to do it. So Lord, would you increase our faith? Lord, for those who, who are doubting this morning, Lord, for those who just need to feel your presence, for those who need to have their wonder and awe of you refreshed. Lord, would you meet them in this place? Lord, would you show yourself to us as being loving and kind like you did the disciples on the sea and like you did 5,000 men who just needed some lunch? Would you allow us to see the grace and the mercy and the volume and the magnitude of your kindness to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.